The corpses left lying in Jonestown for four days now are in serious stages of decomposition, prompting the government here to declare a health hazard in the area. Although it is remote, there is fear of disease spreading if the bodies are not removed or buried soon. Access to this section of northwest Guyana has been severely curtailed. Only government and government-approved aircraft allowed anywhere near Jonestown. No one is allowed inside the compound except authorities in advance of the recovery operation. Restless people from the sick city. But they're home now to make the sky pretty. What can I do? I'm just a person. This is the line that we always seem to hear. Things get worse and watch TV and drink your beer. Welcome back to History Creeps. I am one of your co-hosts, Chris Chavez, and I'm joined here by uh, the uh, guy, the man, the <laughs> cultish leader. I'm just kidding. I don't want to be putting that same boat on this episode. Are you making <laughs> John A. Townsend? What's up, guys? Are, 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 I gotta. Are you making fun of me? No, no. Um, if I was, I almost wanted to just start making up some I, kind of song, <laughs> like Manson. There. All right. Well, I this. I was just a little. Uh, because you know what, we should just get right to it and, and let people know. We've been away for a while, and everyone's <laughs> noticed we've been away for a while. Um, the, the people have been clamoring. They're screaming. They're knocking down my door saying, where has the new episode of History Creeps been, Johnny? Where is it at? I've gotten death threats. I've gotten all kinds of uh, uh, cakes mailed to me with uh, that tasted terrible, just terribly made cakes. And, I, you know, and, and it was... Um, it was rough getting this started again. Uh, it took a while to get back to where we are. Originally, I'd gotten a new job. Um, at least I thought it was a new job. Well, brag. Oh, whoa. And then <laughs> all of a sudden, um, one night I woke up in a bunker and, you know, five U.S. Marshals are dropping in and telling me I've been brainwashed and a part of a cult. So, uh, we decided the next episode we were going to do today was going to address the issue of cults. And um, I don't remember much, so don't ask me anything. That's for the best. Let's let's talk about, let's focus on what we want to talk about today. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to welcome you to the cult of Johnny. It's very nice of you to join. Um, it, you know, your dues are, will do soon. Oh man, cults, dude! Um, nothing scarier than cults. They're they're fascinating to me. Just this, like I, I've studied quite a few of these, just because it's beyond interesting. Interesting to me, like just the power of somebody wanting to fit in into something that they will follow. Just somebody with just charisma is all you really need. Are you fascinated more by the person who follows it and finds that they need to to fit somewhere, or are you fascinated more by the person that? can lead that and actually attract those kind of people and make those people do what they want. It's both, uh, both of them. Really. I was, uh, I mean, I'll get to mine. We're going to do yours first, but <laughs> when I get to mine, one of the people who was in the cult, 
that I'm going to talk about her. One of her first words in any interview she does is nobody sets out to join a cult. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, cults have been around for as long as we can. I mean, as long as history is recorded, you always have these, these people who have had followers do their will, basically their will, you know, uh, and at the drop of a dime, have them end their own lives or, or end other people's lives on their command. Uh, we opened with two sound bites, uh, one of which was the Jonestown Massacre, and the other one, if you didn't recognize the music, um, that's actually Charles Manson. The sultry tones of Manson. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who are familiar with the Manson story know that he had uh, dreams of being a folk singer. So... Um, and I'll get to this in the story, but he had a time where he got into a studio and was able to record a handful of songs, and that was one of them, actually. Let me let me ask you this real quick. Uh huh. Okay. Now, I I love music, mm-hmm. and I really love folk music, like yeah. all from the modern stuff we get now to the older stuff. Same. Now, thing. guitar playing wise, I thought he was he was fine. I actually thought he had some talent there. Now, yeah, when it comes bad. to his his actual singing and well talking, what do you want to call that? I don't know if, and I like Bob Dylan, but I couldn't get on board for his uh, <laughs> vocal presentation. I think it's like a scat, a, a kind of scat spoken word singing folk thing. Yeah, yeah. Was it for me? I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> but um, I like the guitar, though. If I'm being honest, yeah. I, you know, I had to say myself, I was I was actually kind of impressed with. With the voice. I didn't expect it at all. And when I heard it, I was like, this is actually kind of bluesy sounding, you know? Now, I will say when I was first, you know, kind of studying about this guy years ago and I found out that, you know, he tried to be a musician, I was surprised because I was expecting him to be absolutely atrocious. <laughs> and he's, he's not that he, he's just kind of middle of the road, but there is yeah. a little bit of talent there. Just just music, you know, just music wise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's just get right into it. Let's get right into Charles Manson and why he's considered a cult leader and the cult of the Manson family. Um, if you've never lived in this country in the past 50 to 60 years um, and have never heard of Charles Manson, he was a guy in the 60s um, who came across, came onto the national spotlight because of a couple of murders out in California. Um in August of 1969, the bodies of Sharon Tate, who was a famous actress at the time, she was in a movie called The, the Valley of the Dolls, um, and a couple of people that she was friends with, and I think one of them was a famous director, uh, was found in a house, and they had all been murdered. And it would, what made it worse was that she was pregnant. Um, they had been stabbed, uh, slight, the throat sliced. Um, I believe there was a guy that was in the car sitting out front who was shot in the head. And yeah, he was he was literally in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. He was just driving by randomly. Uh, right. And it's insane. So they find those there's these bodies found there. Um, and. There, I think I believe on this in I got uh, my notes are all over the place. I, in the first murder, there was some stuff that they put on the walls. They they in using Sharon Tate's blood. They scroll. Uh, they scrawl the word pig on one wall and then um, and they smeared blood all over the place. I mean, it was just a brutal scene. Uh, this shocked California at the time. This shocked L.A. Like, what in the world's going on? Um, one of the people that was stabbed 102 times. Like, that's just disgusting. Uh, 
a day later, across town, another couple was found murdered. And it was almost like a copycat style because, again, on the wall in the in the victim's blood were some words that were scrawled. One was the word war. Uh, another one was the word death to pigs. The words death to pigs um, rise and then finally helter skelter just all over the walls. Now, that other couple, um, they weren't like actors or anything, but no. they were well to do, weren't they? I thought they were. Yeah, the guy, I think he was a, the like the owner or a high up executive of a grocery store chain. Um, yeah. 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 So he and his wife were were just murdered and destroyed. And then I, I, a musician, there was a music teacher um, who was murdered as well. And it was during it was this guy who was a music teacher um, during this murder investigation that they f- they found out who committed these murders. And it all led back to Charles Manson. But before that happened, no one knew what was going on. Hollywood was like in fear during this time, like that whole idea of what. um the summer of Sam was like in the seventies in New York, the Zodiac killer. That was what was going on in the sixties at that time. They were just coming out of the Woodstock thing and Vietnam war was starting to rage and everything was going weird and crazy. And then all of a sudden in LA, Sharon Tate's murdered, found hanging in this house, babies stabbed, um, friends stabbed, friends shot. It's just a brutal scene. Uh, I've actually even heard that it was so brutal that it pretty much signaled the end of the good time era. You know, the 60s where yep. you know, everybody's like free love and peace. And that pretty much put an end to all of that. Exactly. Um, what had happened is they, they'd seen this murder and they'd seen the murder across town. And at first they didn't they didn't connect the two. They thought it was copycat. Just like I said, um, there was actually a cop that was interviewed. And during the interview, he was saying, you know, that these two murders happen and we have this many people on our force. Uh, and they're going to be investigating this, but he's basically going about saying that they're not connected. Here, give this a listen. Yes, we have 17 sergeants and two lieutenants whose prime responsibility now is the investigation of the uh, both homicides. There are some uh, things there that were of similar nature, but uh, actually the homicides are not connected. Uh, I think the, the public and a lot of the media picked out the fact that they were similar in nature, possibly because of the, the blood and the inscriptions. But this is rather a common type of thing in homicides. We've had many cases before where uh, the suspect is written in blood or in lipstick or various things of that nature. So they didn't know that. They didn't know it was connected. They thought it was two, two different things. And then this mu- the, the music teacher guy was murdered, and they found the, f- the fingerprints of this hippie who had been living in this commune um, <clears throat> just outside, just at, like on the ver- edges of Death Valley. And they arrested him. And in arresting him, they... Um, they realized that these group, this group of hippies living in this commune was also a part of like this crime spree that had been happening all over LA, all over LA VW bugs were getting, um, stolen and they were being converted into buggies and being sold to like these like sand racers and stuff back in out in those days. And, um, they found out like, okay, so this is, this is the little crime ring, right? So they decided to do a raid on this little ranch that they were all staying and when they did, they arrested a lot of the what would later become the Manson family. And they found Charles Manson himself hiding in a cabinet under the bathroom sink. Uh, and they pulled him now, out. Now, when you say a ranch, wasn't it more like a ranch for like movies and stuff? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I say ranch in that way because it was it was abandoned. It was this um, back in those days, they would have sets built out out in the deserts for their westerns and stuff and this is one of the abandoned sets that was like a an old style it looked like an old style like western 
ranch, a ghost town type of a thing. And these guys were all living there um, as a commune. And when you think of like hippies and, and the mentality of all living together and free love, uh, drugs and, and all that stuff, that's w- exactly what was going on there. Except at least on the surface, except when they when they ended up arresting Manson and, and arresting some of these followers and the, they started talking, they realized a whole lot more was going on there than they thought. And then they realized how the connections came to the murders. Because um, what ended up happening is one of the girls that was that was arrested. I mean, she had no problem talking. She was just saying, you know, oh, yeah, that they killed. You know, she was bragging about killing Sharon Tate and what it was like to stab her and all that stuff. And when it came out, like, why did you do this? They basically said it was for, you know, Charles Manson was was the ringleader kind of a thing. Like he he taught them that this was the way the way to go. And his idea was that there was a race war that was going to happen. And doing this was going to start the race war because in the 60s, everything was like tumultuous. There's nothing you will. You, you can watch all kinds of documentaries on the 60s and you'll always it'll always come down to a lot of the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you'll always see those stock footage, black and white films of the the hoses being turned on on African-Americans or the police dogs being thrown at them. And during this time, um, Manson used that like in his mind, he saw a race war like on the country on the verge of a race war. And he truly thought that if it happened, that African-Americans were going to basically obliterate white people. Now, you can, and I don't, I don't know if you read this or not, too, but I also read like, you know, his his idea was that after the African Americans won the race war, yep. that they would look to him as a leader. Yeah, because in his mind was a he, white man, may I add? Yeah, in his mind, well, this is was his mind was that his commune, this his group of white followers that he had, would obviously be superior to African Americans. So if African Americans overtook the white man they would be in charge of a country and not know what to do with it because in his mind, they were intellectually uneven. Like they were at the bottom of the barrel. So when they start floundering and like, what are we going to do with our country? He was going to show up as the savior and they were going to look to him as, Oh, the white man's come to save us kind of thing. And he'd be <laughs> the president and he would run the the country. So like in his mind, the country was the world because really what did he, th- how was he going to like build relations with France or like, britain you know what i mean like what was his thoughts there was the was the race war going to be worldwide and he would be be his answer to every problem was race war (laughs) you know what i mean um and that just goes to show like them there was a mental illness there you know there was something that was telling him like that this is going to happen and a lot of things the reason they they scrawl the words helter skelter on the wall was because he that's the title of a beatles song and he was saying like in his mind the lyrics of that song are laying out the you know basically what was going to happen in this in this race war it was this upcoming race war now you said mental illness now any picture you see of him i don't care what age he is there's just something missing in his eyes like you can look in his eyes and there's just something that's just not quite right easily 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 And, and he had you know this is no excuse obviously but his childhood was not normal no not at all like that's the thing is are you a product of your upbringing or was it predisposed was he already going to be that way no matter what or was it because of his upbringing because it wasn't the nicest upbringing it wasn't the picket white fence and the you know two and a half kids dog in the yard lifestyle at all 
Now, did, did I don't know if you heard this or not, but I heard somewhere, I think he said it himself, so who knows if it's true, uh, that when he was young, his mom sold him for like a pack of beer. No, oh, wow, no, I didn't or hear that. Or traded him for a pack of beer or something like that when I didn't, he was young. I didn't hear that, but I'll tell you, it doesn't surprise me because what I do know of, of that, uh, his early childhood, it just sounds like par for the course, honestly. Um, he was born in like in, in the 30s, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio, to a 16-year-old girl. She was basically a runaway prostitute. Um, and she, you know, she sold her body. She tried. She was a hard drinker and she was a tough girl. She ended up being prison for robbery. Like she wasn't just, a, you know, some girl on the street that was being knocked around. She was not the nicest person herself. And their whole lives, they would like her and, and this baby. And as he grew up as a little boy, they would move around the Midwest and stay with, you know, family members and aunt and uncle. Um, and she would just drop him off and leave. And as a little boy, he would always want that attention. Like he craved his mother's love. Like in his mind, he and his mother were going to be reunited at, and from then forward, have a happy life together. And when he didn't get that, it was like, it was like it turned him off. It, I don't know if it. That's what I'm saying. Do you become the product of, of of what happens? Because is that the reason why he gets cold? You know what I mean, and has no feelings towards anything at all. Because I think I think it can be a part of like what makes you who you are. But there comes a point in any person's life where you can't. You got to stop blaming mommy and daddy and start taking responsibility for your actions and decisions and such. Yeah, because during this time as well, uh, as much as you want the love and before you you want to say that's a break he wasn't the greatest kid either the kid was in he was in so many different reform schools um and back in those days reform schools were basically like child abuse houses like those people beat the crap out of kids <laughs> you know what i mean the yeah. ruler the ruler wasn't the only thing hitting the kids and he dealt with that i think there was something he said he was raped like 15 times at one of these places and he ran away from one of them like 20 times and was re returned 20 times um he didn't have the easiest life one of the things that really played into his anti-social behavior if you will was did you know that he had a mountain man uncle uh, if i'm thinking right and i could be wrong the person who went and got him according to him when he was sold for a pack of beer was his uncle. Yeah, he was a, Oh, was it? I didn't know that. I, it's what I, it's, I think it's what he said. Now, I don't know, you know, with, with him, I don't know what's true. What's not true. Yeah. From what I've read and, uh, and the things I've seen, he was a, basically a civil war. Didn't, what do you call it? When, when the people from the South still deny that the, that the union is in charge, they believe the South will rise again, that whole mentality. Um, he was that was his mentality he was he was a rebel mountain man militia styled guy and he told he would tell charles manson don't listen to the schools don't go to those yankee schools don't listen to the the stuff that they're trying to teach you it's it's all to brainwash you and he he incur he tried to get charles manson to burn the school down ah like so this it was this mentality of like great influence right away yeah right away it, it's 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 question authority fight authority don't listen to authority you know what i mean yeah hey chris yeah now um i know you're having a hard time at school <laughs> you know all these people are just kind of picking on you so i got this great idea now hear me out <laughs> just burn it <laughs> <laughs> i don't think but i don't think the teacher is going to like that much 
it doesn't matter what the teacher likes. I'm telling you to burn it. I'm your uncle. It's insane, man. Yeah. Like, so that's the kind of life he had. He had like trouble. He was getting arrested. He was, you know, small time petty theft type of things, stealing cars. Um, his uncle's telling him to burn down schools, you know, fight the power. Um, and you're also coming out of the 40s and into the 50s where like it's you came out of World War Two and America in his in this mind has this this there's a new wholesome image to the family. You know what I mean? The war's done. There's the the nice little neighborhoods all with the nice lawns. And you know what I mean? That 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 50s image of the family that you have. And now you have Manson at 20 years old starting his first family he decides he's gonna marry his cousin oh okay it's a 17 year old girl that he marries and uh they both decide they want to steal cars and make their way out to la huh that's that's his life it's a marriage in heaven right there (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) so he gets out to la and the reason he wants to go to la is because in la he thinks that's where he's going to be a star because during one of his prison stints, he ended up um, befriending a, a gangster who knew how to play guitar. And the guy taught him how to play guitar. And he was actually really good at it. As you said so yourself, you, uh, you're quite the fan. Um, oh, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> you know you have his album on rotation on Spotify. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but like so he's, his mentality is he's going to go out there. It's the late 50s going into the 60s. Um, it's the sixties is starting to attract this mentality of like that flower power movement. Let me go out there and make a name for myself. He says, and while he's out there, um, he gets swept up in that whole San Fran scene. Like the whole San Francisco scene in the sixties is the hippies with the LSD, the whole counterculture. Like those kids were coming out thinking the establishment doesn't work you know we need to we need to do something completely different that's where the idea of communes came about the hippies and and sharing the land all that kind of stuff because they thought corporations and the way the government ran the system was what was killing everybody you know what i mean yeah and he loved it like he loved that idea of counterculture going against the system so somebody who already has that mentality who is already and he's charismatic the guy is one of the most charismatic guys there is he could talk to you and as crazy as he sounds like you said it yourself you'll look at the guy and he looks like he's not all there but boy is he charismatic the stuff he says you can't be you can't help but listen to him because he's so fascinating you know what i mean well i always found that most of these cult leaders even when they're spouting some of the most you know craziest stuff you could possibly hear they're saying it with complete confidence in what they're saying yeah and that's a part of it. Like if you, you you know if somebody truly feels what they're saying is true or not. Exactly. And and these kids who have this, they're they're already kind of disillusioned. You know, their their idea of rebellion is that their parents and the establishment is wrong. They have this guy who's a little bit older than them, but not old enough to be considered establishment, who is telling them what they want to hear, that their parents are wrong. That they should throw away religion. They should throw away um, morals. They should throw all this stuff away. You know what I mean? And live a life of freedom and a life of you do what you want and no one can question that. And the way he would tell them these things, it would attract them. Like they would they would become mesmerized by the things he said. 
And now, wouldn't, wouldn't he uh, like he would see somebody hitchhiking, like a younger person, he would stop and pick them up, and then before like the ride was over, they were pretty much would follow him anywhere. Basically, that's the thing. Like he had that way of speaking. He could command a crowd. He had the gift that, like you said, like the the craziest people had. Uh, Adolf Hitler was one of those guys that when he spoke, people listened. You know, it was just it was mesmerizing. It could have been absolute nonsense, but it's mesmerizing. And you you start to buy what they're saying Um, and you buy what they're saying more when you're desperate to. You know, these kids who are desperate to cling on to something that was different from what they were taught. um, it, It was it was like, this is what we've been looking for. And he would start to attract these followers. And at first it was women. He would just really like it was like he was gathering women and they would follow him. And he would, you know, they would go from from little like house to house and place to place and stay places. And he would start to pimp them out and and basically prostitute them out. And that's how he started attracting men into the cult, into this idea of. Let's all live together and be this family where we all take care of each other and we're against the system and we're against the culture that everyone has accepted. And yeah, and it, and it, and it didn't hurt him at all that uh, these most of these women were pretty attractive. Yeah, no, they easily got, you know, got the men hooked into it and then enter LSD, you know, a mind altering drug that that basically alters your perception and makes you see the world in a different way so when you're already when you're under the influence of this and you're hearing the voice of somebody tell you life can be different and you don't have to accept this and you already have this inner thing inside you that's telling you you want to have something different you're disillusioned with your parents and the system and and you know vietnam's on the rise it's about to to start here soon like there's problems going on in the world like you, you grab onto it. You grab on with all your might and you don't let go. And that's what happened with all these kids. They got wrapped up in this and he used a lot of the mind altering drugs to help um, his propaganda, basically to help brainwash them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody growing up, I don't care how you were brought up. There's at least one point in your life where you're trying to figure out how you fit in into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like for me, it was like in my early twenties, which I think is what most of these people were. Yeah. Basically. Uh, and, you know, you just, you're kind of, even though, you know, you, your parents, even if your parents raised you great, there's always going to be at least one part of your, your life where you're kind of questioning things. Right. Because it's, that, an, it's almost like a natural order. It's a part of the yeah. natural progression, I guess. And he, and he knew that. Yeah. And he'd already gone through it himself and he, and he knew that and he knew how he, he recognized it in the youth and he recognized that if he could get them to follow him and manipulate them, he could get them to do whatever he wanted. And with the help of a drug that could alter their mind in that way, that was it. It was like the keys to the kingdom for him. Well, it's like in professional sports. I mean, this is a weird <laughs> comparison, but you know, uh, any, like I'll use basketball just cause that's what I follow. Uh-huh. Uh, like a, a pro team will draft a player who has a lot of potential, but he obviously isn't at his greatest yet because he's just starting out. And, you know, if you draft him into your system, you can kind of mold him to play mm-hmm. in a way that you want him to play. Exactly. And and based on how you do it off the court, whether it's with brutal drills, you know, whatever you do to punish him. And basically you mold him like an animal, you know, you, yeah, or LSD. You know. But exactly. But you know what I mean? Like a coach will mold his players into yeah. the team he wants using psychology off the court, using of brute strength or, or, or just 
you know, whatever it is that he needs to do to break them, it's it's you're you're right. It's the same thing. And once your mind is is clicked and now it's like that all you have to do is hear the bell and you salivate type of a thing, it's Yeah, Pavlov. Yeah. The it's yeah. like I said, keys to the kingdom, right? Right, yeah, so, exactly. So now it's like wherever Manson walks, he's got four, five, six women behind him just kind of following along. It's just this weird like Jesus figure walking the streets of San Francisco and L.A., you know what I mean? And these women following behind him. And, and it's at first it's not a weird thing because hippies are everywhere right now. They're all about the free love and, you know, fight the power and, and no war kind of a thing. Um, then a gentleman by the name is Dennis Wilson's driving home one night along these Los Angeles streets. Dennis Wilson is the drummer of the Beach Boys. Yeah, I was about to say, that's a very familiar name. <laughs> yeah, he's the drummer of the Beach Boys, who are one of the biggest bands at the time in the 60s, up there with the Beatles, um, the Rolling Stones. Uh, yeah, that's what I was about to say. They were so big that even the Beatles, like they would be mentioned in the same breath as the Beatles. That's how big they were at one point. Yeah, they were almost like the American version of the Beatles for, for their harmonies. And I mean, except it was yeah, for it surfers. Was, <laughs> yeah, it was the wholesome surf rock, you know, the blonde boys, the blue eyes and, and the tan. Yeah, and they would be on Full House and all, all those <laughs> later on. For, yeah, remember that episode, yeah. <laughs> Kokomo? Oh man, stay uh. tuned for our Full House podcast <laughs> <laughs> coming soon. Uh, yeah, cut it out. <laughs> so yeah, so Dennis Wilson's driving home one night from from whatever he was doing, and he sees one of these girls hitchhiking, and he's like, you know, I'm going to give her a ride home. Maybe you pick which version it was the the wholesome Dennis Wilson with oh I'll give her a ride home and make sure he's safe or the per- yeah. pervy L A Dennis Wilson and oh all right let me get this girl. Uh, well, you also got to think about I mean we, on this show we like to make sure people know the time the yeah. period of time it was you know in today's now today's age picking up any hitchhiker I don't care who it is and what they look like is, is there's an element of danger to it uh, you know but back then and during his free love time picking up anybody especially a young beautiful woman it was just something you would just do yeah and it wasn't a problem it, it was basically like oh now the night's gotten interesting yeah you it's know. like my night's not over now like <laughs> you know <laughs> we're gonna be like something's gonna happen maybe yeah and boy did he not get he didn't plan for what he was gonna get he so he, he picks up this hitchhiker brings her home and you know she tells the story of being on you know on her own she'd run away from home and she's having hard times and this needs just some, some places to stay for a few nights. And he's like, yeah, not a problem. And she talks about having friends out on the street. And so the next day he, he goes to take care of some business and leaves her there to have breakfast on her own. And when he comes back later in the day, there's a whole family of people there. The entire Manson family's there now. They're just all camped out at his place, kind of just hanging out. And at first he was kind of taken aback, but he was like, you know, like you said, it was the 60s. It was different that time. I was like, oh, you know, go with the flow. Roll with it, man. No problem. Smoke some weed and we'll all hang out. And that's exactly what happened. They just kind of hung out. They overstayed their welcome for a while. Um, But during this time, Manson was just like really enamored by the fact that Dennis Wilson could be his ticket to stardom. You know, this was what he was waiting for. And he would show Wilson his music and say, this is, you know, I've been working on this stuff. And Wilson was actually impressed. He was like, wow, this guy is actually pretty cool. And in his mind, it was this, like I said, this almost like Jesus like figure, like this really cool guy who has this cool like mantra. And these people kind of follow him. Hippie commune thing. He didn't know about like the petty theft and all the other things these guys had under their belt. He just saw, you know, the 
the ideal hippie love folk singer in front of him, this new untapped talent, you know? Yeah. So he told him, he's like, we can definitely record you. And he did. He ended up booking Manson some studio time. Uh, and that's where you hear that a part of that song at the beginning of the show is from that studio time. But nothing happened with it. And it made Manson a little kooky. He wasn't happy. <laughs> he well, was, I think he was already. I think he was already kooky. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but it didn't help when he he yeah. saw this this door open and then slam shut because th- nothing happened. Nothing moved forward, and he grew more and more irate and upset. And after a while, Dennis was like, "All right, you're a little much. Uh, we're cutting ties." And that's when they moved out to the ranch, out into their commune in the desert. And they would start like he would start to really push this propaganda on them that they had to follow him at all times. He would do these trust things with them where they would, you know, the all these different trust exercises and mirror exercises. There was one thing I saw where one of the girls was talking about like at any time he could come up to you and then put his hands up like he was going to put his hands up at a mirror. And you had to, to touch, you know, put your hands up to his at the exact same time. And then wherever he would move his hands, no matter what he do, you had to mirror him. And um, a psych- I saw a psychologist was talking about it and said, like, that's a that's like a, a classic way that people like that start to control you because you doing what they do is you're, you're submitting to them. You're saying, I'm going to do and follow whatever you're doing at this time. And he would do it over and over and over with all these people. Um, more LSD, more LSD. One of the things I saw he did was a reenactment of the crucifixion while they were all on LSD. And as far as they were concerned, he was this risen savior. Well, I mean, that's how he saw himself. Yeah, he did. And after a while, you started to see the long hair coming out and that bearded look, and he's trying to give himself that Christ image. Um, so, yeah, they ended up doing doing the, the, the isolation out in Barker Ranch for a while uh, in Death Valley, and they started getting more and more paranoid. So they moved back to L.A., um, and that's when he started really getting into this idea that the race war was coming. There was a race war coming. So in 69, he has this idea like we got to get this started we're going to start the race war and like we said at the beginning of the show when it happens the you know the african americans are going to take over and then they're going to flounder and we're going to come and save the day now i I think i read it somewhere that he had been harping on this race war for so long and it and it wasn't happening that you know some people were starting to obviously question Mm -hmm. question it so yeah he felt the need like for him you know, his power over these people was everything for him. So he felt the need to do what he could to keep that. Yeah. And he he felt like it was time to kickstart it. But and there was also this time now where it was like, I'm going to test you more than seeing if you'll listen to me when I tell you to go steal a, a Volkswagen. You know what I mean? We're going to see what you'll do now. And so what he told them to do originally was to drive around until he could f- to find someone's house. Didn't matter whose house. And whoever was going to be there that night, they would kill. And I believe that originally they drove around, they found the house, and they had kind of scouted it out. And that night, um, Manson wasn't there. He sent he sent a couple of the girls and uh, a, a couple of the guys to the house where Sharon Tate and her friends were having a, a party. Um, and they went in, they killed her, they stabbed, you know, and, and sliced the throats of the, the guests. Um, they hung her. Like I said, one of the victims was stabbed 102 times. And now, you know, before even this, wasn't there somebody who had owed him money or something? 
And yeah, that was the thing. Um, I think what it was is the the Tate house, the house where they had been was the guy used to live there. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And I think I think like Charlie Manson took a like to like a katana sword to him or something. It didn't kill him, but he definitely, you know, he cut him or something like that. The guy that owed him money. I think so. Oh, I didn't know anything about that, really. Unless I'm just talking out my behind. Which could no, be awesome. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who knows? This dude has had so so many you know problems with the law and has been so crazy. That may be a true story. I I just never I never saw that part of it. I never heard that. Um, but who knows? Yeah, I do know that the house originally was belonged to somebody that he had he had known. That the guy had owed him some money. Um, so they ended up going in there and killing the you know the famous Sharon Tate murders. Basically, goes down and. The next night, Manson decides when they when they kill the, the, the shop owner, the, the grocery store owner, he was going to be a part of it this time because I think one of the things I read was that there was a, one of the girls he was going to have, you know, help commit this murder questioned like why why he wasn't coming along. And, and it kind of annoyed him, but he went anyway and he ends up going and all he did was tie up the people like he drove the guy, the people out there and he tied up the um the owner and his wife and then he left and he let and he sent the the followers in to do the, the bidding and they went to town and they started you know cutting them up and and stabbing them and, and they actually carved the words um war in the guy's flesh uh again blood everywhere death to pigs rise helter skelter one of the i think it was the wife i can't i can't remember if it's the wife or the guy was stabbed 67 times mm. just insane and so, okay, I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you in the middle of this, yeah, but no, the good. guy I was talking about was Gary Hinman was his name. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the music guy. The, the, yeah, the, on July 25th of 69, apparently they held him captive in his own house for three days because they believed he had money <laughs> and that he owed them money for whatever reason. There's conflicting stories on that. Uh, but anyway, um, during one of those days, Manson arrived and had a sword with him. And he sliced his left ear and face. Oh, see, I didn't read that, but that that doesn't surprise me. But it was because it was during that the investigation of that that incident that they found the th- the fingerprints of uh, the kid that ended up leading them to the Mansons. Um, as I said at the beginning of the show, it was that because of this incident, the one you're talking about here. I didn't realize it was a katana incident. That's insane. Uh, one of the p one of the followers that was there, his fingerprints came up. They arrested him. The one of these hippie guys found out about the commune. Ended up doing the raid. Originally arresting these people for uh, the other people for the the Volkswagen murders, and then, like I said, one of the girls spilled the beans that they were involved in all this. And then it came out about Manson and who this guy was. So this little guy that they had arrested from underneath uh, a bathroom sink cabinet. Um, was basically this monster. You know what I mean? He wasn't this. And the guy's five foot two. Did you know he was that short? I think he was short. I didn't realize he was that short. Yeah, dude. He's five foot two. He is a tiny man. But when you think of Manson, like you think of a monster. You know what I mean? Like it's almost a larger than life um, figure. And all these things would come out during the trial, like all this weird stuff. He would come into the trial and he'd carved an X in his forehead between his eyes. And then his, his followers would come in the next day having done the same thing. And he shaved his head. And the next day the followers came in having done the same thing. Uh, you remember when we did our um, 
our episode about the girl who uh who chopped up or no what was it she killed her she killed uh um oh no it's the witch trials and you remember how the one girl they would all act in the courtroom like singing and crying out and carrying on oh yeah they put it on a show it's exactly what happened here these girls the followers would go in the courtroom and they would sing these songs um and they were his songs so it wasn't like songs anyone knew they would be singing charles manson songs um as they walked in holding hands sometimes they would pretend to be fainting and carrying on and they'd have to be you know brought out of the courtroom it was a circus but during this whole time this whole thing that's going on the the world's starting to learn of this like crazy dude and the way he made these people follow him um one of this i found a clip of one of the news reports at that time where these followers were sitting outside of the courtroom and the guy one of the reporters went up to ask him about him uh, about charles manson and so the world is learning of this monster here's how the followers describe him listen to this well, when I first met him, the man talked to me and he says, I want you to come up and uh, the rules are that, you know, there is no rules. You just look at it and just be beautiful with it and it's just beautiful to you. Yeah. You know, and I love him. Mm-hmm. His so-called power, which is, it only lies in his happiness. Yeah. That's what attracts people is he's completely happy. Yeah. He dances. Gentle, he yeah. dances, he sings, uh, he looks beautiful, he looks happy. And this draws a lot of people, just like people are drawn to little babies. He was compared, <laughs> he's compared to a little baby. Oh, and by the way, they did end up killing him. Yes, he was. He was dead. Yeah. Um, so. so, yeah, but you could see that the kind of power that someone like this has on people. Um, the Manson cult, it ended up becoming one of like the biggest crime stories of the 60s, like you said. It was one of the things that ushered in the end of the love era. You know, it basically brought on the cold 70s and um, some of the horrors that the 70s would end up bringing. This is a Channel 7 News scene special report with our continuing coverage of the People's Temple story and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. Now with the latest details, Van Amberg and Marsha Brandwin. Good evening. Here's what's happening. We're interrupting our special broadcasting to bring you this special report, um, a news news break on the People's Temple mass suicides in Guyana and the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. I would mention to you now, tonight's movie will run in its entirety immediately following this special report. I also have to warn you as we begin this special report that what you're about to see almost defies description, and some of you may not want to watch it. As soon as these pictures from Jonestown cleared our newsroom, everybody, even a lot of hardened news people, reacted in horror and disbelief. The word on everybody's lips was shades of Auschwitz. These are the first pictures out of Guyana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the People's Temple. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, this is obviously about Jonestown and uh, and what happened there. Another mad cult, if you will. Oh, oh yeah. Now, you know, you talked about Manson, who obviously uh, was one... I don't, I don't want to like sound like I'm praising him, but he, he was definitely a leader. People yeah. would follow him. Charisma. Yeah, he had charisma. Now, another man who had that in spades was Jim Jones. Now, you know, Manson, to me, always came off like he didn't really hide his madness. Uh, you know, he had confidence in the in the whatever he was spewing from his mouth. <laughs> right. Uh, Jim Jones, as you learn more about this man... Like he felt like his own son said in an interview that Jim Jones knew he was a fraud. Really? But he did. He did. Yeah. But he didn't want anybody else to know that. Now, 
before we even get to Jonestown, just to give you a little background on Jim Jones, because obviously he's the one you need to know about. Uh, you know, he was born in 1931 in Indiana. Um, and this is, and as he was growing up, he started to realize that he felt like he had a lot in common with African-Americans, as in during this time, you know, weren't even allowed to drink from the same water fountain, all those crazy things that you know, seem ridiculous nowadays. And in Indiana, they said, especially had a lot of undertones of racism involved. Hmm. And he, um, <clears throat> but he felt like since he didn't feel like he fit, uh, fit in anywhere, he felt like he was a part of them in a way. And as he was growing up, he really took to preachers, uh, Methodist preachers, especially because they would give these fiery uh, messages, and they would, and he could see the crowd really getting behind these people, right? Right. So as he was a kid, he would practice that growing up. He would try to own in on his own talent, and he eventually becomes a, a pastor. Really. Oh, so and he learned, he learned it at a, a young age. He he learned to be like that charismatic, like the charisma would control people. Oh yeah, he definitely could <laughs> see it, and you know, uh, charisma, and it comes in many different forms. A lot of people have it, and it just depends on, like, how they have it, I guess, is a way uh -huh. to put it. Uh -huh. You know, like, uh, comedians. Some comedians have charisma and are funny with it. Yeah. You know, and some people, like Jim Jones, have charisma, and people will follow them. Huh, yeah. Because he gives them a place where they feel like they belong, just like Manson did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and also, you got to throw in that this is a, a, a religion. It started out as a religion and it becomes the people's temple, which is what they were when all that happened. A Christian uh, religion. Was it just a plant? Was it a specific sect, like a Baptist or a Protestant Methodist? Or yeah. Methodist? It was like a, a branch of the Methodist church oh, is how that. it started. And if you actually listen to, uh, anybody talking about how it started, you know, that one lady, a survivor from that cult said that nobody starts out to join a cult. That's not what your main re reason for joining these things are. And he would preach, you know, love and acceptance of everybody uh they were one of the in indiana they're one of the churches that actually uh you know would let african-americans in and, and actually encourage them to come in and old people older people too to join them in their worship services and and it would be like really upbeat worship services you see you can see plenty of video of this of this guy he's he would record everything he did and you can just see everybody just getting up off their seats you know and jumping up and down and screaming and just, uh, you know, praising God at that time, that would eventually change. Huh. And, uh, you know, and it became like a, a place where everybody would go to belong. They would say that he would go, he would take his buses, right? And he would take his congregation across the United States and stop in different places and hold uh, little messages. And people would come in and listen to him. And he said some people would actually just get on the bus with him on the way back. They would just leave everything and get on the bus. That's how... Like charismatic just, this man is. You mean leave all their possessions and their lives, everything behind, just jump on the bus? Well, that's what they encouraged and kind of preached about anyway. Wow. Uh, you know, they eventually did leave Indiana because of the racism. Uh, he would, in his services, if you came out and, and it happened a few times, they said, where people kind of disapproved of, you know, uh, segregating it. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, if you didn't, if you weren't okay with uh, worshiping beside an African-American, he would ask you to leave. Wow. So, you know, on the outside looking at this, it sounds great, don't it? Well, in that time era, I can see why they he would feel, um, you know, like an outcast, though. And like you said, the African being uh, friendly to the African-Americans who already feel outcast in that time. Um, 
wow, that's that makes a statement when he says that. Get out of my church if you can't do that. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, he really he really would preach at this time. I mean, this changes uh, messages from the Bible that were about acceptance and all this. And mm-hmm. this is one thing I found really interesting: that him and his wife were the first couple in Indiana to adopt an African American child. Really? Yeah, the first one ever. And they actually ended up having, I think it was like seven kids total. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three of the kids were of Korean-American ancestry. Uh, one of the kids was a Native American, and the other one was African-American. And then uh, he had a son that was actually a biological. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, on the outside, just looking in, this guy was really, at this time, he was almost cutting edge of acceptance and and love and, you know, Love and peace, almost not hippie, definitely not hippie, but you know what I mean. Like it's right. coming from that same kind of area of acceptance like and a such. Progressive uh, approach, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, finally he decided they needed to leave Indiana because they were a they weren't they were growing too fast, and b they needed he needed to get out of there. He was as you study him more and more, like you can sense <laughs> this this uh, I don't even know how to put this. I think he had something wrong with him, like a, some sort of uh. <laughs> Mental illness, in a way, but it was never diagnosed. But it seems like it comes off that way if you really study how the man is. Most of the time, people with megalomania that 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 mentality where they they feel like they're gods almost, they're they're the kings, and they're they're more important than they truly are. Uh, usually, there's a mental illness that's powering that. Uh, oh yeah, just like Manson. Wow, yeah. I mean, and you can, I mean, literally, like I said, you can find almost all of his uh, preachings and stuff that he would give, even in the early days. Huh. And you can see it change. You can listen to it change. It gradually changes. Uh, you know, in the... Like descending in the, into madness type of thing? Yeah, that's, that's actually how his son described it. He said you could actually watch... See, he actually knew um, before they were went to uh, um, Guyana that his dad wasn't his dad, if that makes any sense. Huh. I found, uh, a, um, I found a clip of Jim Jones ranting. You want to play a little bit of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go for it. Enjoy this. I got. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna preface this with. I haven't listened to this yet. I just pulled it. Pulled it up, and it just says Jim Jones ranting. So uh, let's hear and see what he says. Someone had me very busy, needed to talk to me about something, so I just went into the drawer and picked out a pair of shorts and put it on, and they had the needle fixed with some poison on the end of it, so that would just touch the cheek and go in, and I knew right then what someone was up to. But I want you to know I've not been off my feet. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you see, during during this time, too, this is another sign that things were changing. And they moved to California because he felt that was a safer place. He, you know, during this time, he was afraid of some sort of a apocalypse happening or something like that. And he felt and, like people were trying to kill him? Is that what this whole thing was? With yeah, prison? that's that's the one thing. He would constantly say people were out to get him. He would stage things. Like he was staged drive-by shootings uh, and all this kind of crazy stuff to prove that his rants and stuff were becoming true. And at some point when they moved to California, he rejects the Bible. I mean, he takes the Bible. Uh, this guy says he takes the Bible during one of their one of his messages and just flings a Bible across the room like it's a football <laughs> uh, and just says, you know, this book's been holding everybody back. It's pretty much was his message. So then he says that, you know, if you need somebody to be your dad, I'll be your dad. Nothing, if you need somebody to be your God, I'll be your God, is what he said. Nothing like shock value. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, you know, imagine like you're searching for a place to belong, and this guy who you've been following just does that suddenly out of nowhere. Yeah, no kidding. 
I mean, any pastor, really, if you see any pastor, you're flipping out. Especially yeah, if you're super religious. I mean, that's the book you follow and, and you're taught like this is a holy book. You don't desecrate it. You don't, you know what I mean? And dude's just the guy you're following that that's telling you I'm leading you the Lord's path is throwing this book, this holy book across yeah. the room. I could just see like the old ladies like, oh, pass it out. Yeah. Falling Fainting, over. falling over. <laughs> and their, their friends are next to them, fanning them, you know, with their little <laughs> scarves. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, when they're in California is when they really become a community. <sighs> um, you know, uh, like as in he would convince, especially the senior citizens, that they needed to sell their house and they could come live on the community. Oh, man. And that's what they would do. And they would sell their house and all the proceeds would go to the church. And um, they would and all these older people would have all their meet, uh, needs met at the at their actual church. Like they would have, uh, you know, if they needed to go to the dentist, that was taken care of. If they had some kind of health concern that was taken care of. If, you know, whatever their needs they needed were met there hmm. so on the outside looking in this sounds like this doesn't sound that bad no paradise right yeah especially if you're with people who are like-minded and believe your beliefs it's almost like a, a comforting thing because you already feel outcast you know so to know you'll be surrounded by people who think the same way as you and accept you for who you are and now everything's taken care of you have to worry about anything else sign me up yeah it's a comfort it's a major comfort is what it sounds like but, you know, the the face he would put on, though, was not what was going on behind the curtains, if, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. In the, in the early 70s, uh, he moved the headquarters of the church to San Francisco because <clears throat> the more you study this man, the more you see his need to have attention. Mm-hmm. He just needs it. Like, he, that's what he feeds off of. And he needs people to follow his every word. That's that's almost like that's where he put his worth was if anybody was following what he was saying or listening mm. to him or whatever. Mm. But he becomes politically influential in the San Francisco area. I mean, as in uh, vice presidents or people who run for vice president would meet with him. Uh, you know, other people running for office would meet with him because they knew that if they got him to kind of back them up, that wherever they were holding anything, he would have his followers come up. And that's like over a thousand people just suddenly showing up, just you know, yelling for you. And that looks great, right? You look great if that happens. Right, no kidding. I mean, I, I want that now. <laughs> well, it's but not Chris- like, and here's the problem, though. Back in those days, you didn't have social media and, and news at, the, at your fingertips within seconds. So, like, those times when he's going mad and going crazy, like, no one's recording that on their cell phone and putting it up on YouTube right away. So that this, this political leader that's got ties to him now, you know, is going to try to distance himself. That wasn't happening. As far as they were concerned, he had this huge following. He was highly respected. And when you show up a lot of people, you know, a lot of his congregation, people who are on a path, on a better religious path, which in the 60s and 70s was more important in American values than it is today, let's be honest. Um, yeah. But but back then it was very it was part of the institution. So political leaders having religious leaders um, support them was huge, huge, huge. Imagine if they did have the cell phone and somebody put up a YouTube thing of him talking about, you know, being all paranoid that he's going to be stabbed by a poison needle. You know, yeah. I mean? <laughs> then the, the po- politicians are like, I don't know that guy. I never went to his church. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. If he came around today. <laughs> Can you know, you I don't think he would have half the following he had back then. Not at all. If he if he went the same route with the words he chose to use and such. Hmm. I think he still would have had a following just because of his charisma and Yeah. And he knew what he was doing in a way, uh, you know, to get people to follow him. Like I said, at first this all sounds like it's a it's a fine and it was okay. But behind the curtains things were happening. Yeah. 
Like if you if you're a part of his, we'll call it religion for now because I don't think it turns into a cult till they officially move. <laughs> but you know, they're following his beliefs, this man's beliefs. You know, um, like your hook, line, and sinker. You live there, you work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you work somewhere else, let's say you had a job off of there, all your your paycheck when you got it would go straight to him, and then you would get some of that money. Hmm. Like he was in charge of all the finances. He was, uh, the, he was the husband of the family, or the, the who who does the finances? The wife, the husband? I don't know. In my in my house, it's the wife. So, yeah, well, was, that's how it should be. But just, <laughs> was, I, if, you know, if I ever get married, I hope she's good with money. He's, <laughs> he was the wife of the family of the congregation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll do the bills and I'll give you a little bit of allowance. <laughs> and, and he would start preaching some weird things, like he would preach uh, that they, nobody in a congregation should have sex because it <laughs> kind of takes away any of your. Um, like what your goal should be in life as in helping others and such like that. Nope. But as he's preaching this, I mean, which is fine and dandy, whatever. But as he's preaching this, he was having sex all the time with men and women in a congregation constantly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. he was a hypocrite. Oh, oh, in the, in the highest of terms, he was a hypocrite hugely. Okay. Oh man. You know, and I mean, it's just, <laughs> this is when I'm like, sign me out, shut it down. Well, you know, and also, I mean, this was this is what would sign me out right here. Uh-oh. Is let's say you did something wrong, mm-hmm. and he finds out about it. Well, instead of like just talking to you to the side or behind closed doors, mm-hmm. he brings you up in front of everyone, says what you did, and then decides what the punishment should be. <laughs> so, like this one guy said that when he got called up, he knew he was going to be in for a fight because. Most of the time, the punishment was like a circle. Of people would just get around you, and just beat the tar out of you. <laughs> yeah. He's like the the Bloods and Crips. He's like beating people yeah. in and out of gangs. <laughs> Good God! And you just had to take it, I guess. <laughs> oh my God! Oh, did it matter your age? That I don't know. But most of this was the older people who were talking about it. I know it wasn't like they were bringing grandma up there and like having everyone beat grandma down. Were they? That'd be horrible, man. It probably depends on what she did. Oh my <laughs> god! Could you imagine? Could you imagine witnessing it? Like, how do you sit around and keep going on this thing that you thought was going to be like a paradise? This this perfect life now is like a nightmare. Well, you know, you can see all these interviews from these guys and and, and women who survived that cult. And this one guy said that he would see all this stuff happening all the time. And he was like, he was becoming one of the high uh, members of it. You know, he's becoming a part of that trusted circle with Jim Jones. And he was watching all this happen and he would get, so, and he got so mad at himself. And you could see it in the interview, like the genuine emotion coming from his man. And he's like, I didn't do a dang thing about it. I didn't do a dang thing. Mm. And he was so mad at himself and, you know, and that he should have done something, but he didn't. He didn't do anything. <sighs> That's yeah. Horrible. So it, it's cr- so all this time, you know, while they're doing this, they're having their own community built in, Gu- in Guyana, uh, and they're calling it Jonestown. He sent some of his followers there early. Like, I can't remember how long it took them to build it, but they built a whole community. It's a whole, like, there's a, there's a big pavilion. There's a bunch of houses. Mm-hmm. and I mean, they went all out on this thing. It's in the middle of the jungle, pretty much. Was it like an escape plan, like somewhere for him to, for, for them to go to to escape people trying to poison them or? Or I was, think it was more that uh, he had read somewhere that that was one of the places to go that would be safe from some sort of giant attack of any sorts, and it would be safe there. Huh. And like I said, this this man was becoming more and more paranoid. He was on drugs mm-hmm. that nobody knew about. 
by the way. It was all a secret. His family did his, his son know? His son knew. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his son, as you, if, if you see any interviews with, interviews with his son, I don't think he did very many, you know, understandably, but he, there's a point where he decides that his dad's not who he says he is. And they become, even though he stays with them, mm-hmm. you know, they obviously don't get along because he, you know, as he becomes in his late teens, early twenties, he starts kind of becoming, I guess, a rebellious teenager. <laughs> And, and obviously, you can look at this stuff and be like, you know, this something's not right here. I don't believe in God anymore, Dad. What did you say? Get out of my house. <laughs> you don't mean that, son. You don't mean that. <laughs> well, oh, I think man. at one point he said his dad had asked him not to leave because it would look bad on him if his son left. Wow. But it's, his, it's his biological son we're talking about here. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was named after him, if I'm, not, if I'm thinking right. So, you know, it would look really bad if that person left the church and there'd be all kinds of questions asked. Mm. Now, anywhere Jim Jones would go, if he would go to these uh, uh, political meetings or whatever mm-hmm. in San Francisco, he'd have a following. Like he said, the people would stand up when he would enter the room and they would sit down when he got, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he's getting all kinds of attention. And uh, this one news, this one paper decided they're going to write an article about him. And at first it was going to be like just, uh, just about how everybody's following this guy and there must be something about him. But uh, some people who had left the church had heard that this article was being written, and they said they wanted to talk to the guy writing it. And then that gets around to Jim Jones. And so he knows this article is not going to be good. Uh-huh. And he makes everybody in his congregation, well, almost everybody, not everybody went, but a good chunk of them, uh, get on a plane and go to Guyana, like out of nowhere, it seems. They said less than a week later, before, right before the article came out, they were gone. All expenses paid trip. <laughs> yeah, well, this, sunny- like I said, this church had plenty of money. If you want to call it a church, <laughs> to sunny because- Guyana, can you imagine him like trying to get it, pushing it over during the church service before they head out? He's like, "How am I going to sell this to him?" <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. What they would do is they would send back videos from from there of Jonestown, and everybody who's there is talking, just talking it up. <laughs> and, uh, like they would interview different people who were there working on it before the congregation got there, and uh, you know, some of them would be like. Oh, this is the greatest place. I never want to leave here. That kind of stuff. So they were building it up like crazy. That's awesome. And and as this is happening, it's becoming harder and harder to leave the church. And people, uh, relatives and people who have left the church who are trying to get in contact with people inside the church were having difficulty in doing so. And then especially even more so when they left to Guyana. They cut, pretty much cut off all contact with everybody. Hmm. And, and you know, and you got to, and when they got to Jonestown, uh, here's some, here's some little facts for you about the actual Jonestown. Sixty-eight uh, percent of the of the people there were African American that was involved with Jonestown. Mm-hmm. It's all ages. This is men, women, and children. Mm-hmm. They were all cut off from their family. And at Jonestown, there was no TV or radio. The only thing that you would hear would be all these loudspeakers he had all over the place. It would just be him talking constantly, 24-7. Oh, my God. Yeah, he would record himself, and then he would just play it 24-7, even at night, they said. No way. Yeah. Oh. So, it, and this is where we kind of get to uh, Leo Ryan, the congressman uh, from California. Uh, he kept getting all these people saying, hey, you need to go check this out and see what's happening down there from you know concerned relatives. You know, how would you feel if, like, uh, somebody in your family that you're close to mm-hmm. or one of your 
best friends moved out of the country and they weren't responding to anything you said. Yeah, no kidding. And then you heard about these, you hear these articles coming out where past people were claiming abuse. Yeah, I'd be worried. Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't know that I'd write my congressman, though. Like, I guess back in those days, you wrote your congressman for everything. Yeah. It was like the the stoplight on the intersection has been acting up. Write the congressman. Get him to do something about it. Uh, would you tweet them? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, yeah. my first thing would have been like to maybe call the FBI or the police, you know. Well, I think they'd all been called like that. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, there was some sort of custody battle going on, too, between somebody in the congregation and somebody that stayed in the United States going uh, on as well with some kid that was going on down there. But um, there's this really great documentary that I would feel bad if I forgot to mention it. It was on PBS about Jonestown and it's on YouTube. I highly encourage everybody to watch it. Just make sure that you know going into it, it's not a happy viewing. <laughs> There's nothing. You're not going to feel great after you watch it. It's not an Anna, Adam Sandler comedy. Oh, yeah. There's no There's no uh, people falling on their faces <laughs> or people riding hoverboards and falling in this. <laughs> oh, my God. That Mike Tyson video is amazing, by it the is. way. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's not happening in this documentary, but it's a good no, one you said. No, no not at all. <laughs> Like I say, anyway, this congr- this congressman decides that he's going to go there mm-hmm. to Guyana and to Jonestown, and uh, he takes the some M- some NBC reporters, a camera crew, some of the family members, uh, down with him. So it was like a it was like um it was like those those uh investigative reports, you know, when they surprise people when they come in. Like, like they pop up and are like we're doing an investigation on the scene if you're keeping your kitchen clean enough and so they're like let's go check out this jonestown bring bring all the cameras bring the family members well i think people have been constantly asking to come down there and see you know their family and stuff so he jones knew that something was coming oh so it wasn't a surprise he knew they were coming he knew where there he knew that they were there before they showed up i see okay yeah so uh, and this was in november of 78 um you know, he had a camera crew and reporters and family members, like I said, and they knew he was coming because by the time that Ryan got there, he had this huge reception for him. Oh, okay. Oh, so yeah. they knew they had planned this whole thing. They brought had planned the- it out. They knew he was coming. They want to put on their best face possible. So they say brought all the actors out. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Yeah, and you know, so this was very important for Jones. He didn't want anybody there, but if they were going to be there, he wanted to make sure that everything looked great. That sort of thing. So, you know, they had a big reception for him. And you can find this on uh, YouTube, the actual thing of where there's this big reception. He gets up with a microphone, you know, Ryan does, and he says that, you know, a lot of people have been asking about this place, but from what I can see that, and from the people that I talk to, that everybody here thinks this is the greatest thing that ever happened to them. And the place just erupts in tears. Wow. I'm gonna have so to if he would have stopped there, I think he would have been fine and nothing else would have happened. <laughs> Wow. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> it gets much worse. Uh, and like I said, you know, he's getting, Jones is getting more paranoid during this time. Thinks everybody's out to get him. He's been kind of uh, uh, saying these little things in his messages about how they all might have to uh, commit revolutionary suicide, is what he would call it. Wow. These little things. They already had a bunch of, uh, it wasn't Kool Aid, but it was a drink like Kool Aid. I can't remember what it's called, but, you know, you've heard of the term drink the Kool Aid. This is where this comes from. Wow. Uh, yeah, so the actual <laughs> origin of that funny little saying is not funny at all. Uh, he, the next day, apparently during, apparently one of the family 
or whatever you want to call it. I keep calling them family because you were talking about Manson a minute ago. <laughs> it is but, like a family, though. You're right, because how can yeah. you call it religion? He basically built himself this psychotic family, this family. Yeah, this huge family, by the way. There's a ton of people there. Mm-hmm. So apparently somebody tries to slip him a note or somebody on his crew a note, Ryan's crew a note, saying, hey, uh, I want to leave, but they won't let me. Was the gist of the note. Hmm. So they take that note to Jones and say, hey, this was happening. Jones would say, if somebody wants to leave, they can leave. But that's not what he meant at all. <laughs> yeah. But he knew he had to say that. And you can actually see these little interviews with him, with Jones, and listen to all his recordings in Jonestown. You can tell he's getting more and more on drugs. His speech has become more and more slurred, even more out there and kind of wacky in a way <laughs> of the stuff he would say. So all this was happening. And I th- and, you know, a lot of people were like, well, I'm going to, I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember the number of people who said they were going to leave, but it ended up being quite a few of the people from the family. Um, John said, hey, if you want to leave, just please leave. Leave us leave us alone. We're not bothering anybody. Oh, okay. He was, But basically, he was like, show me who to shoot first. Yeah. For, I think he'd already decided by then. I don't know if this is true, but this is just what it seems like. He already decided by then he was going to kill Ryan. It was done. Yeah, he'd already decided it, that it was going to happen because it happened so quick that obviously he had this planned, I think. Mm. Um, so, you know, and before Ryan even leaves to go to the plane, he's attacked by one of the family members who tries to stab him. <clears throat> wow. And that's what says, uh, that's what makes him decide that they need to leave now. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. You know, if somebody tried to stab me, I'm going to decide that I need to get out of that area pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, I overstayed my welcome. Obviously, now was it? How did they have a? They had an airstrip. They had Jonestown? an airstrip over there, not far from where Jonestown was. Okay, and uh, so they got to the planes, and I think there was two planes there. And he had plant. Jones had planted one of the people who was leaving had a gun on him. Uh, you know, so he had this all planned. Hmm. So when they're when they're boarding the planes, this truck pulls up with people from. Uh, Jonestown, and uh, you can watch all these interviews of the people who survived, and it's just eerie. They said the people would get out there holding these huge guns, and they would go out and they would look at everybody, and they wouldn't say a word. They would just look at them and uh. didn't say anything, and then they wouldn't go back into the truck. Hmm. And the truck drove around, and then there's actual video footage of the, one of the cameramen because he was videotaping this. They started opening fire. They started shooting everybody they saw. Wow, really? And, yeah, and the guy in the, who was, I think he was already in the plane by then, who had the gun to s- start shooting too, uh, just whoever they could. And people were running into the jungle. Some people tried to hide, you know, under the plane. Ryan tried to hide under the plane. That's where they shot and killed him. Wow. Um, this one lady who was with him, I wish I could remember her name, but she was with him and she got shot once and she tried to play dead. And she could hear them walking around for everybody who was down on the ground putting extra bullets into them. And he said this guy was standing over her. She didn't move. She wanted to make him think she was dead, and he still shot her again. That's insane. Yeah. So it's, it, I mean, it was just a it just brutal. Even if if it stopped there, that's a bad enough story. Mm-hmm. He kills a congressman. He has a congressman killed, uh, and four others at that strip. Uh, a reporter and a cameraman from NBC were both killed, and the other uh, the others were just people from the family who had left. Hmm. Do you uh, think everybody else ran into the jungle? 
Do you think that's it? He's done. Like he knew he did that, and it's a big deal because you kill a congressman. Now you have the entire U.S. government coming after you. You think he already made his choice? Like everyone's dying tonight or today or within the next couple of days? Or do you think it was just a rash decision? You can't let him get away. He knows. Do something. I think he. I think he'd already decided it. I mean, he had been kind of putting it into his whole family's heads that that's what they were going to do if it came to it. Yeah, so. I heard. I, I think I'd read somewhere how um, like every night or every two nights they'd all line up and, and get the little Kool-Aid thing and he'd tell them all that it was poison and that it would take effect within a half hour and that you know at some point the government was coming and they'd all drink it and like a half hour would go by and nothing had happened and he'd tell them it was a loyalty test and that you know one day the government would come and they'd have to do it so they should be ready but he would do it over and over and every night they'd do it they think they'd be you know they'd die and then they wouldn't he would do that a lot uh, he called it a white knight is what he would call it. Oh. And that you would hear the white knight go over the loudspeakers. And, he, and that meant that you were supposed to rush to the big building in the center or whatever they wanted to call it. And that's where he would do all this stuff like that. Hmm. But this time he was going to do it for real. And you can, you can find this whole thing, the last recording of Jones. And it's him telling all these people they needed to drink this stuff. Hmm. Uh, he laced it with cyanide is what it was. It was, it was a Kool-Aid like drink laced with cyanide. And all this is recorded. You can listen to it all. I do not recommend it because it's just heartbreaking. Wow. Uh, it's a tough, tough listen. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever listened to, and I really should have stopped, but it was I just couldn't. And like he asked, he even asked at one point as these people, he wanted the children to go first. Hmm. See, that's the, I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize. Three over three hundred kids that over three hundred of the people out of nine hundred that died there were children. Yeah, no kidding. Of all ages, all ages, not just, not just like older kids, but younger kids. It didn't matter. Jeez. And you can hear all these women screaming in the background about their children. And he would be, and he would say stuff like, uh, mothers, mothers, please don't be like this. Don't be like this. That sort of stuff. He was like, he was trying to calm them down from them watching their children die in front of them. Jeez. It was insane. I mean, this man's insane. No and they also said that some of the survivors, there weren't very many survivors of there that some did run away. That as there were these people were being made to drink the Kool Aid, he had a lot of the other uh, loyal members standing around him with guns, making sure no one ran off. Yeah, oh. yeah. Pretty much giving it the the idea that if you decide you're not going to drink, you're going to die either way. No kidding. So, you know, you can listen to this if you want, but somebody they said one of the older women tried to say, "Hey, why are we doing this? The children, especially, deserve to live." Because he actually asked if anybody. Uh, thought they shouldn't do this. You can you can listen to this whole recording, hmm. and she is shut down by other members, which is the scariest part of all. Is Jeez. is that they were all so on so in Jim Jones' pocket, like they believe anything his men said it did. That they would shut this woman down who was making complete sense. <laughs> you know, at at this crazy time. Yeah, no kidding. So when it was all said and done, nine hundred and nine people in Jonestown died from the cyanide poisoning. It was the greatest single loss of American life in a deliberate act until September 11th. <sighs> uh, you know, it's 900 and, uh, so it's 909 there. And then you had five others were killed on the airstrip. Wow. Did he, did, the, did he drink? He didn't drink the poison, right? He was, no, shot. no, he was actually found with a gunshot in his head. Yeah. I think he either did it or he had, he told someone they, they, there's there's conflicting reports they say that he did it but somebody thinks that somebody else did it so it, it just it doesn't matter but uh 
Some people ran out into the jungle and got away. Very few, man. Uh, the reason that his uh, sons are still alive are because they were off playing basketball somewhere. So they weren't even there. That's the only reason they were alive. Jeez, that is insane. And uh, his son said that when they got back, they were arrested. Because, you know, the government there didn't know what was happening. Hmm. So they uh, they let him go eventually. But, yeah, so that's, that's Jonestown. That's the end of Jonestown. Wow. And it's insane, dude. You're right. Like the I've I've I remember seeing a documentary about it and hearing the last thing. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about maybe ending the show with this with him doing speaking, but the last speech is too much. You don't want to hear all that crying and screaming in the background. No, I I, I just couldn't take it. Maybe his maybe some of his nonsense, you know, his rants and stuff where he's he's a, an idiot. That's that's a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, maybe where you can hear him slurring a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he was I mean it's it doesn't take much, and it still goes on today. You know, uh, we want to think that we're smarter nowadays. I was going to say, what do you think? Have aside, let's see, because since then there was the Koresh, David Koresh. Um, but what else has, has there been? Big, big cults in the more recent times. Well, there's a big one that I'm thinking of now, but if I say it, I think they'll follow us. <laughs> <laughs> does it have to? It's, does it uh, um, purport to have to do with science? Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I Should I watch a I've South really Park stu- episode? I really studied Jonestown. I mean, the whole thing pretty heavy, hardcore yeah. for years. And then I've looked into Scientology. Uh-oh. I'll just, apparently, I'll just Uh-oh. go out and say it. Uh-oh. And there's a lot of things that were really shaky Uh-oh. and kind of similar to me. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, I used to live in uh, in Florida. Um, in, Clearwater? Yeah, just south of St. Pete, Clearwater area. And yeah, the, the home the home base. Well, you know, they own all kinds of property across the world, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're yeah. one of the richest. Uh, well, they're considered a religion here, even though <laughs> in other countries they're not. You know, it's just it's. This man, is fun. We should do. We should do an entire episode on Scientology. We really should. Well, I think we should too. It'd be awesome. Because I could really get into that. I almost did just now, but you know. All right. Yeah, we'll save it for a new episode at some point in the future. All right. We well, you know this episode was one of the most cursed episodes <laughs> in all the podcasts. So I'm thinking we're going to have to do a curses a curse episode at some point. <laughs> we, yeah, it'll just be about how we tried to get this episode done for the past two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, was, listeners. We've tried. Insane. I promise. Yeah, no kidding. Um, aside from like a conflict in, in schedule at one point, it was um, a mic issue, a sound issue, a battery issue, an internet issue. Um, <laughs> Any sort of issue that could hinder us doing this was happening. But we, we pulled through. We struggled through. I think Manston knew we were going to do this, and he was out to get us. Oh, Stop this from happening. Because he he's did. still alive, you know. He is. He's sending curses our way. He was supposed to. Did you see that thing when that girl wanted to marry him? Oh, yeah, but wasn't she playing a trick on him or something? Well, basically, she was wanting to marry him because she knew that whenever he died, she'd have, like, you know, she could make all this money off of his name and his likeness and all that stuff. And so, I guess, they, Manston was like, never mind. She doesn't love me for me. I don't want to marry her. That's kind of funny in a way because he was playing all those <laughs> other people and she was trying to play him. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, cults, man. Cults. Yeah, so I think I'm <laughs> going to start one. I don't want it to end like that or any of those. I want to be just like a happy, fun cult. <laughs> yeah, I don't think <laughs> everybody gets along. You're going to have to call it something else because I think cult has too much of a, a bad connotation. Yeah, it really does. Uh, like, you know, if you hear the word cult, you're not thinking that you want to be a part of this. No, not at all. Not at yeah. all. I'm going to call it a movement. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Uh, well, we did it, though. We finished the episode. <laughs> That's the name of this episode. We did it. <laughs> we finally did Cults. We finally did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do for our next episode yet. Do you have any idea or we just want to let our listeners come back and find be surprised when they see the update? I said we surprise them. Alrighty. Well, for me, I guess we're just going to do the end of our show, huh? That sounds good. All right. I'll so what have you got going on? I've got um, Back Issues comic book podcast, as always, with Anthony Mullen and Brandon uh, Fuller. Fine, gentlemen. Yep. We've got our history creeps. We're going to try to do our D&D again at some point. That was on hiatus as well from the holidays and different schedules. So we'll see what happens there, right? Yes. Yes. Um, And other than that, you can, if you want to follow me on Instagram at ccchavez13. Same thing on Twitter. I'm all over the place there. Our po- our Back Issues podcast has a Twitter now, too. So it's uh, B-I-C-B podcast on Twitter. Cool, That's about cool. it for me. Well, I got into Oblivion with Bobby. It's a, definitely a more lighthearted fare than this. <laughs> if you want to be entertained by complete goofiness, go listen to it. It's on iTunes and Stitcher, and as well as www.supervillecomics.com. That's going to be changing soon. To the Superville Network, I think. Very nice. A Superville Comics Network. Um, you can find this podcast, History Creeps, as well as Into Oblivion. Both have Facebook pages. Please go like and join those. Yep. Uh, please like and review the these podcasts because it helps us out when you do so. Yep. Uh, I have an Instagram, Johnnyism28. Follow me on there. I put a lot of my art and whatever goofy things I'm thinking of on there. And I think it's a, covered everything. I think we got it. Yeah, that's it. That's everything we need to do. So <sighs> finally, we did it. I know. No kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Take a deep breath. Everything that they wish to do, and even kill you, thinking they do God a service. And if you're not getting persecution, you're not living godly. So I have my credentials. What about you? If you're not getting persecution, you ought to ask why. Because when you live for truth, you'll be persecuted. And if you're not getting persecuted, you're not living the just life. You're not living the just life.